Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, we'll examine a topic that is relevant for all believers. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 with Dr. John Newfeld with a lesson called Overcoming Pride. Charles Towns, a Nobel Prize winner in laser technology, was asked about how he felt in accomplishing such great things. He said, it's like the beaver told the rabbit as they stared at the immense view of the Hoover Dam. No, I didn't actually build it myself, but it was based on an idea of mine. I think Towns was trying to say that all that he had accomplished in life was really a lot smaller than anyone could actually imagine. So many others had contributed so much. Now, to speak that way and actually mean it, well, that's what we call humility. Well, today we're going to talk about pride, pride among Christians. I'm talking about spiritual pride. You should know at the outset that pride is toxic to becoming a mature man or woman of God. Both James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5 say exactly the same thing. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did you know that? If you have spiritual pride, God stands opposed to you. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says that pride is the opposite of love. You can't be loving and proud at the same time. Romans 12.16 says that pride stops us from living in harmony with each other. Proverbs 3.34 says that God mocks people who are proud. Proverbs 18.12 says that pride goes before a downfall. We know that Satan fell from grace simply because he was proud. And we also know that many people have done the same thing. Pride is toxic to your spiritual growth. It will kill it. We've been studying the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, and today I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's see if we can follow Paul's line of thought. When he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, we must ask, what things is Paul talking about? Whether these things must refer to three images Paul has given to the Corinthians regarding spiritual leadership. First is the image of the farmer in chapter 3, 6 to 9. I planted, he said, and Apollos watered. The second image is found in chapter 3, 10 to 15. It's the image of the builder. I laid a foundation, he says, and someone else is building upon it. And then the third image is found in chapter 4, 1 to 5. It's the image of the servant and the steward doing only those duties that the master of the house has assigned to them. Now, in each one of these images, Paul is trying to paint a picture that the role each minister of the gospel plays is different than that which another minister of the gospel might play. And the reason for that is seen in the unique calling they receive from God. And these images which Paul applied to himself and to Apollos were given, he says, for the benefit of the Corinthian believers, not for the benefit of Paul and Apollos. Both Paul and Apollos had served the Corinthian church for some time, and by portraying their ministry in the language of a gardener, a builder, and a steward, Paul has hoped the Corinthians would not only get an insight into why the ministry of these two men were so different, he was wanting them to get an insight into themselves. So what were the Corinthians to learn? Well, from what follows, it is clear that he had in mind that when the Corinthian believers examined the unique roles that God has signed to Apollos and to Paul, they would be given an insight into how to live and walk in humility. 
Let's remember that the Corinthian church was in the middle of a crisis. Some said, I follow Paul, and others, I follow Apollos, and so forth. That would be like saying, I follow the gardener who plants, and the other, no, no, the gardener who waters is far superior, so I follow the gardener who waters. But the owner of the field had assigned the tasks to his servants. He had told Paul to plant and Apollos to water. What madness, then, to argue about whose ministry was better or whether to be followed. You know, perhaps the saddest part of the Corinthian division is that the leaders themselves had no part in this divisiveness. It was not the leaders who had become arrogant, not one against another. Rather, it was their followers who had become arrogant, one against another. How sad. Now notice again how verse 6 reads, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. You'll be greatly helped in healing the divisions in Corinth if you take some time and contemplate these images. And what they would find as they thought about these things is that they had become arrogant, proud, puffed up, one group trying to outdo the other. Do you know the most terrible thing about spiritual pride? It is that those who are spiritually proud often do not recognize it in themselves. They're convinced of the shortcomings of others, but not of their own pride. You know, some time ago after preaching a sermon on humility, a man came to me and told me he knew exactly who should have been listening to me that day. But unfortunately, they weren't in church that day. You know, that's the thing about pride. It's, it's so insidious that we are all more prone to recognize it in others than in ourselves. Clearly, we need a way not of diagnosing others. There had already been too much judgmentalism in Corinth. They needed a way of diagnosing it in themselves. And so Paul gives them two diagnostic indicators of pride. We all know that medical diagnostic tools are four. They actually don't cure you, but they are the basis upon which a cure can be sought. Until you know what you have, you just can't be helped. Just like an MRI might detect a brain tumor, so Paul gives us a spiritual MRI of pride. Now, are you ready for the diagnosis? Here it is. Let's listen to verse 6 again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, it would appear that the line, do not go beyond what was written, was probably a saying, a teaching, a very recognizable statement that every Corinthian believer had been taught. Perhaps Paul had taught them this line. Maybe it was Apollos. We don't know, but Paul mentions it here because every Corinthian knew what it meant. The statement would have meant the Old Testament scriptures. Don't go beyond what was written in the scriptures you have. The statement was intended to put boundaries around the believer's behavior. The Bible forms the boundaries of the spiritual life. But Paul has already shown them that when it came to judging their leaders, Paul, Apollos, or Peter, they had gone well beyond what was written. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that Christian leaders are servants of God. They are like subordinates who simply do what God tells them to do. But the Corinthians had imagined more. They assumed that they knew more about what a Christian leader was to be than was actually revealed in the Bible. And with that comes the first diagnostic indicator of pride. Pride believes it knows the mind of God apart from Scripture. It ignores a disciplined study of Scripture, and it's quick to add its own agenda as an addition to the revealed will of God. I hope you see this. Whenever anyone is forming a spiritual opinion of something, 
whatever it is, of leaders, of morality, of God, faith, of the church, of what the pastors or elders should be doing, of personal lifestyle issues, of judging another's internal hidden secrets of his or her own heart. I mean, you name it. Whenever anyone is forming a spiritual opinion of something apart from Scripture or that goes beyond the Word, that opinion assumes that we know what God is secretly thinking. Now, just to be clear, there are many things the Bible doesn't tell us about. You know, some time ago, I was asked to evaluate a so-called biblical weight loss program. And my response was, there are no biblical principles for weight loss. I know I've heard of eating the way Jesus did, but I suspect Jesus just ate the foods that were available to him at that time. You know, if you want to lose weight on a weight loss program, might I suggest the Bible might not help you at all. A good pagan weight loss program might just be fine. And please don't send me your emails on this one. There are all manner of things the Bible doesn't talk about. But it does talk about God, salvation, sin, holiness, and wisdom in living. It does talk about how we should respond to each other, how we should view our leaders. It is clear about the kinds of tasks they must give themselves to. And it even warns when they don't do what they're supposed to do. And wherever the Bible speaks to an issue, we are called upon to obey, and we are called upon not to go beyond what is written. I think that Paul means at least two things. First, we're called upon to believe and obey that which God has revealed. We're called upon not to substitute our thinking for God's. This is especially essential when it comes to obedience to God's commands. We must keep ourselves within the bounds of God's revealed directives to our lives. But, and here is the difficulty, it's so very easy to be disappointed with the commands, feeling they do not go far enough. As an example of that, we need only to think of the Pharisees and the commands found in the Scripture. So if the Scripture commanded you to keep the Sabbath holy and to do no work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were disappointed at the lack of clarity regarding this command. And so they added commands so that we be crystal clear as to what constituted work. So if you walk too far on the Sabbath, that was work. But exactly how far could you walk on the Sabbath? Now new laws had to be made about how far you could walk and whether you could transport an object between a private domain and a public domain, how many letters you could write on a page on the Sabbath. Well, in actual fact, they put together a list of 39 prohibited activities on the Sabbath. And when we come back, we're going to see why this wasn't just their problem. It was ours as well. Someone once was quoted as saying, to err is human. Well, I think the more we grow as believers, we come to realize that to take pride in ourselves is to be human. Pride is something we all possess. There are no exceptions. It's a matter of seeing and recognizing this before we can truly change. After the break, we'll understand why pride is so damaging and how we can begin to overcome it. year's end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Particularly the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, 
We are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Those of you who know your history will remember that in 1522, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli created an uproar by eating sausages. It was Lent, and in the Middle Ages Catholic Church, a rule had been established around fasting during this period of time. But Zwingli had argued that one was free to fast or not to fast because the Bible does not prohibit the eating of sausages during Lent. And where the Bible makes no command, we are free to do as our conscience dictates without the condemnation of another. So like a good Swiss man would do, he sat down and ate sausages to his heart's delight. No one should condemn him, he said, for we are not permitted to go beyond what is written. How many of you know that many a church quarrel in the past surrounded issues not found in the Bible? And that's the point I had made. Pride believes it knows the mind of God beyond the Scripture. It adds commands. And in the case of the Corinthian believers, they began to make unbiblical demands of their leaders, demands that went beyond the limitations of Scripture. Well, we do the same today. Some of us may have a mental image of what a pastor should or should not be, an image that is not informed in Scripture. Now, I've been told a pastor should not ride a motorcycle, but I do. Just as happily as Zwingli ate sausages, I ride my bike. Going beyond Scripture is an act of arrogance. It's spiritual pride that says, I'm in the place to add commands on top of Scripture. But there's more. A second indicator of spiritual pride. Pride not only believes it knows the mind of God, but pride forgets how much it needs the grace of God. Let's look again at verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here Paul is getting at the tendency of the Corinthian believers to judge their leaders, thinking of one leader more highly than the other because of their abilities. And he asks a question. What do you have, any of you? What do you have that you did not receive? We're talking about an MRI image of our pride. Here it is. Pride elevates human abilities and pride ignores human depravity. It's what the great theologian Augustine pointed out about this text. He said, Whatever there is of excellence in mankind is not implanted in him by nature so that it could be ascribed either to nature or to descent, and further, that it is not acquired by free will so as to bring God under obligation, but flows from his pure and undeserved nature. Now, if you understood that, good for you. And if you didn't, let me repeat it in layman's language. The only thing you own is your sin. All of the other stuff, that reflects on a good God working through an an evil vessel like you. Got it? So I think that God has given us so many things. Health, intelligence, strength, opportunities, abilities, skills, family, friends, even your positive values are a gift from God. But some of you actually judge people. You right now might be feeling smugly superior to someone because of your IQ, your education, your job, your work ethic, your moral virtues, your appearance, because you know you're gorgeous. And even your accomplishments, which are superior to others, you have graduated with, you have gotten from grace. I hope I get your attention. If you haven't seen pride in yourself by now, you're not listening. 
But why is this so important? Someone might say, as long as I keep this stuff mainly to myself and maybe a few friends, what's the harm? Well, let me give you three toxic effects of pride. One, a divided Christian community. Pride builds walls between people. It can't help but do that. That's what it did in Corinth. The church there was divided. Believers were suspicious. And what did it lead to? In 1 Corinthians 1.11, quarrels had developed. One leader's abilities were exalted above another's simply on the basis of abilities that God, in his providential wisdom, had assigned. Here's what I've observed in all human endeavors. We notice who is doing better than whom. We all do. And in the Christian community, this ultimately results in defensiveness and envy and harsh reaction and long-term bitterness and division. Spiritual pride devastates the local church. It results first in a divided community and then second in a mistrust of Christian leaders or even of others. Because you do not believe your leaders are given by God's grace and that their gifts are put in them in just the way that God wanted it. You begin to compare them to one another and find them wanting. Oh, Pastor so-and-so, well, well, he was so much better. He's so much more friendly, more organized. He was a better speaker. He cared more. And so a level of condemnation and arrogance begins to filter through instead of thankfulness for God and what he has provided. But leaders also can become proud, and they can condemn their own people in the same way. So pride results in division and mistrust, and thirdly, in an unrealistic appraisal of Christian maturity. Do you remember what Paul taught the Corinthians about leadership? This is how one should regard us, he said, as servants and as stewards, as farmers and as builders. We are subordinates, only doing what our master has assigned. Luke 17, verse 10, Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You know, the best you can attain to is to be called a servant of Christ. Now, I think that's no small thing, for Christ is the Lord of glory. To serve him is to serve the one who is ultimately worthy. What higher place can we attain than that? It doesn't matter what the assignment is. It might be preaching to thousands, or it might be cleaning up after the kids in kids' ministry. Just do what God has assigned you to do, and then realize that everything that was accomplished, well, that was grace. God owns that. And everything that was messed up, yeah, that was sin. You own that. And say with Jesus, we're all unworthy servants. But pride can't say that. And the crazy thing is that pride is not easily defeated. Executive consultant Richard Hagberg, interviewed in Fortune magazine, once told the following story. He said, the head of one large company recently told me about an incident that occurred as he and his wife waited in line to get his driver's license. He was frustrated at how long it was taking and grumbled to his wife, don't they know who I am? And she replied, yep, you're a plumber's son who got lucky. Well, praise God for wives who understand the truth. Now, you and I don't believe in luck, but we do believe in grace. But just when we think we understand that it's all about grace, well, we soon forget it again. And pride with its insidious tentacles is back, believing we really do know the secret mind of God and forgetting that all we have has been given to us by the grace of God. So is it really possible to defeat pride? Well, I think it is. Remember that all we have is from God. You know, some time ago, I had an interesting conversation with a man who had grown up in a Christian home but had rejected the gospel. 
He told me the key reason was that there was all this nonsense in the Christian faith about humility. He told me he worked hard for everything he had accomplished and owed God nothing. And he certainly was not going to give God any credit for what he had accomplished on his own. You know, I was amazed. We had quite a conversation after that. Who gave him the healthy body that he had? Where did his bright mind come from? Every breath he took came with lungs that worked and breathed in the air that God had so graciously provided, even as those very lungs were now being used to curse God. The economy of this country, with the richness of its resources, were also a gift from God, but this man chose to ignore all of that in favor of his raw arrogance in the face of a God who had graciously paid all his bills. You know, as most of us would say, I I would never say that. Yet aren't we saying something very similar all the time? When we rate one of our leaders against the other, are we not saying that? When we look down at someone who is less spiritual, has accomplished less than we have, doesn't seem to understand as quickly as we do, or is not as gifted as we are, when we do such things, are we not cursing our Creator and elevating ourselves above His provision? You know, if you want to heal divisions among us, we really must become humble. We must say, I will not go beyond Scripture, and I will not take credit for that which God has given as a gift of grace. Heavenly Father, I pray, help us to understand things as you see them, so that we might become truly humble in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. John, I feel liberated to eat sausage today. Thanks for that great story. But as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, pride is an insidious thing. All of a sudden it's there. We don't even realize it. And we're talking arrogantly or we're judging someone. How do we keep a handle on the pride issue? Yeah, I think I would say two things. The first, interestingly enough, don't become too introspective. I mean, some of us become so introspective, we just can't move forward. And I think there needs to be a measure of freedom in all that we do. But the second thing I think is fundamental here. The minute we begin to think of ourselves as superior to someone else or we begin to look down at someone else, uh, we might see our giftedness is different than theirs. And because of that, we belittle them. That's the warning sign. We need to be careful that we look at other people and see the grace of God in their lives and think the best possible way that we can about them. I think those are the indicators. Well, as we've been talking honestly about a very big issue that affects all of us, young, old, seasoned believer, new believer, I think it's one of those messages that can make us uncomfortable, but it's so necessary. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season, a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. Well, December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead. Your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry, or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st? Your gift among other committed ministry partners across Canada will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. 
please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.